If, if I could learn to cook food at a high level and, um, and that people could enjoy, then I can literally and figuratively bring people to the table. Hi, I'm June Castlemere, and you're listening to In the Pocket, a podcast brought to you by the National Filipino American Lawyers Association. This month's interview is one that's timely in light of current events, but also one that's destined to be a classic and it's one you're going to want to bookmark and listen to more than once. In this interview, Heidi Henning Rao interviews Rob Vasquez. We're fortunate to have Rob walk us through key legal concepts relating to the safety of military personnel. Then he and Heidi talk about the role of food in friendship and diplomacy and his choice to enter the culinary arts. Finally, the two discuss the lessons he learned as a leader. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. I'm here today with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Rob Vasquez. For over 23 years in the U.S. Army, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Vasquez served in many legal, operational, policy, and leadership assignments in the United States and in the European, Indo-Pacific, and Middle East regions. He spent the better part of the last 10 years focused on legal, operational, and policy work to protect and enforce human rights in many countries, including Iraq, Syria, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Colombia. As Rob approached retirement from the Army, he decided to pursue a passion where, as he puts it, everybody wins. He is now a candidate for a degree in culinary arts and pastry arts, and he looks forward to spreading goodwill through good food. Good afternoon, Rob. Hi. It's a thrill to have you here. Yeah, it's great to see you again, Heidi. And uh, have this opportunity to speak with you today. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me about growing up in a Filipino-American family. How many siblings did you have? I have, uh, I'm one of four, I'm the youngest of four siblings actually. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated to the U.S. actually at different times. Uh, my mom in 1963 and then my dad six years later, so they kept their marriage going for six years, half a world away. Uh, my dad, when he came to the U.S., worked for Transworld Airlines and uh, when he got a great opportunity for a promotion in San Francisco, my mom, who was a board certified internal medicine doc, um, followed by joining the military. And uh, um, so she could continue to practice medicine and not have to pass a medical board in every state where dad's job may take her. What aspects of your younger years do you think were representative of the Filipino-American experience? Oh, wow. Well, I think in my young years, uh, for me, it was a feeling of isolation and you know, for being different from everybody else. Uh, in elementary school, I was one of maybe two or three non-white kids in the whole school. And I also happened to be one of the shortest. Um, and so, as such, people treated me differently. I mean, most, for the most part, they treated me with sense of, a sense of curiosity, uh, but then some also took it as an opportunity to bully me. And so, um, you know, that experience as a Filipino-American in a really largely homogenous uh, neighborhood taught me to, um, you know, to... It taught me to either, you know, avoid unnecessary conflict, uh, to resolve disputes diplomatically wherever possible, and if I needed to stand my ground to do so confidently. Well, I don't love hearing that you were bullied, but I wonder if that's impacted the philosophy that you just mentioned and, and sort of how you, uh, whether there, there was a, 
an experience from your past that you carried forward into later years? There was actually something that happened. Uh, I was, for some reason, four, four guys in junior high school had it out for me, I'm not sure why. And um, as we were finishing PE and leaving the locker room, they cornered me. And uh, one guy, presumably the leader, uh, punched me in the gut. And you know, I thought, well, how do I handle this? I, I could either run away, uh, I could try to take four people on, or I could find something in between. And so instead, I just kind of looked the guy square in the eye and said, that's all you got. And as I saw the reaction of his other partners, uh, it allowed me to just walk away. Wow. Well. Uh... I'm glad that ended that way because it that, ended that well. probably could have gone either way for <laughs> it, you there. It could have been ugly. Um, but in looking back, how does your upbringing affect your current identity? Oh, wow. Well, um, I think it taught me, again, I, I wanted to be somebody who tried to fit in, but also sort of acknowledged that I was different and that was a good thing. And um, uh, with strong parents who taught me a lot of strong values and, and a belief in yourself, uh, a belief firmly rooted in our traditions and in our faith uh, kind of allowed me to, to take that as a good foundation for who I like to think I am now. And certainly standing your ground probably translated well into your military experience. <laughs> it does, yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, we've known each other for a while now and I consider you a very good friend. I know that your mom means a lot to you. Did, um, did your mom's experience in the Navy, right? Yes, the Navy. Did that mm -hmm. affect your decision to join the military? It, it certainly was. You know, my mom uh, served in the Navy for 21 years. She's actually buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, my oldest brother served in the Air Force for nine years, and so we are pretty much a military family. Uh, but it was actually my mom who informed me about how the military branches have their own law firms. Uh, that was something in law school I didn't know anything about, and so a, uh, an Army JAG recruiter came to our school. I listened to that pitch. I thought it was really interesting. And I applied for and was lucky enough to be selected for an internship. And so I served as an intern after my second year of law school. Okay, so you went to law school first and then joined the military. Is there a reason that you went into the Judge Advocate Corps instead of sticking with private practice? I, there is, actually. Um, I actually had a chance to compare my experiences both in uh, civil litigation as well as in the Army. And uh, after serving as a, an intern in the Army, I had a chance to do some cool things. I mean, I, I walked crime scenes with prosecutors, I, uh, uh, I got to interview witnesses, um, police investigators, I wrote briefs. Um, it, was, it was a lot of great experience, hands-on experience. And then during my third year of law school and, and for a short time as an attorney with a small civil litigation firm in Sacramento, I rarely ever left my desk. You know, it was responding to requests for discovery. Super or, exciting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> was, I, I was watching paint dry. So uh, I had a chance to compare the two and I realized, I mean, it was a clear choice. You know, the Army wasn't my only choice, it was my best choice. So a lot of people might not really understand what it means to be a judge advocate. So can you talk about the areas of law that you practiced in in your time as a judge advocate? Absolutely, I guess to use baseball terminology, I kind of touched all the bases. Uh, like any, any society, it, you know, it has legal requirements and it has uh, lawyers who help inform. And so for, uh, for my experience in the Army, I, I was a prosecutor and a defense attorney, so I tried a total of 50 court-martial cases on both sides of the V. I, um, I help soldiers and retirees and their family members with their personal legal affairs, you know, landlord-tenant disputes, uh, consumer protection, family law. Uh, I help commanders comply with statutory and regular, regulatory requirements 
in the areas of labor and employment law, health law, uh, environmental law, contract and fiscal uh, law. And as you mentioned in the intro, for the past decade, I advise commanders and, and diplomats, actually, uh, from the U.S. and from other countries on uh, the use of military force to advance, protect, and enforce human rights principles. So it, it's, it was a great ride. What was your, I mean, since you touched all these different bases, what was your favorite type of matter to handle? You know, if that matter hit your desk, um, you thought, yeah, this is going to be yeah, awesome. I started Can't salivating. wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which one? Yeah. Uh, I, I, could, I could at least name one in the every practice area, but I think the funnest thing for me was uh, cross-examining witnesses at trial. <laughs> oh, boy. It was just so <laughs> fun, just using people's own words. Uh, not realizing that they are actually digging themselves deeper in a hole and letting them sort of self-actuate. Right. Uh, it was, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that chess issues. game and uh, yes. having that killer move. So fun. I love it. <laughs> um, so what are some of your most memorable experiences serving as a judge advocate? Ooh, uh, there, there are so many. And uh, uh, anticipating this question, I, I was jockeying between five, six, or seven, but I kind of wanted to focus on one. And it's kind of prescient because this week is actually the 10th anniversary of the uh, shooting, uh, the massacre on Fort Hood. And I was assigned at Fort Hood. And in fact, I was the chief of operational law at the time. And, at Fort uh, Hood? At Fort Hood. Oh, wow. And okay. so uh, my, some of my teammates were at the site, actually, when the shooting was taking place. And so my heart was just in my throat, praying that, that people were safe. Um, I actually walked uh, the scene that night. And um, you know, the bodies were still where they breathed their last. and. Uh, uh, I smelled the blood. Um, I saw the blood spatter, the, the, the spent shell casings, broken windows, and uh, you know, can only imagine hearing uh, what must have been taking place at that time. And can you remind us what happened that, yes. that day? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nidal Hassan, who was a, an army psychologist um, who had had connections to um, uh, some uh, Al-Qaeda uh, leaders, uh, went on a shooting spree at Fort Hood. He, he had multiple weapons, went to what's called a soldier readiness processing site. It's where we go to make sure we have our administrative affairs in order before we deploy or when we return from deployment. And uh, every soldier and civilian in that facility was unarmed. And he went into the facility, uh, guns blazing. He killed 13 and he wounded 30 uh, before our first responders finally got to him. And the amazing thing is after he was shot and, and, and put down, uh, the same people he was trying to kill were rendering him first aid. And, and they were doing so because it was their duty to do so and because they believed it was the right thing to do. So what was your role in all of that? Yeah, well, uh, as the chief of operational law, I was pretty busy. You know, we had to respond immediately to the threat. And so uh, I was responsible for ensuring our quick reaction force understood uh, their limitations on the use of force. And that was only to, for the protection of people critical infrastructure and, and facilities. It wasn't to engage him. That was uh, the, the law enforcement's responsibility. Um, and law enforcement means non-military? Non-military. Okay. Yeah, either our on-post law enforcement folks, and we actually had folks from outside police agencies enter the, uh, enter the post. Um, one effort in particular involved uh, planning. You know, how do we make Fort Hood uh, a harder target? so that if there's a copycat, or if there's a lone wolf, or if there's a follow-up, that, that we won't suffer from the same consequences. And, um, and in this planning group, there was a very senior uh, civilian who said, I think we need to start collecting on people of Muslim descent. And uh, uh, I sat back, already knowing where this was gonna go. 
um, people were fearful. Uh, they were angry and they wanted to make sure that we were ready in case something was going to happen again. But I thought, as many others, certainly in hindsight, thought that that feeling was misplaced, uh, this idea that we needed to collect on Muslims. And so after listening to others talk, um, the head of the planning group, a two-star general, looked at me and said, Judge, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't want to assume anything, so I'm just going to ask a series of questions. And the first question is, what is our goal? And people kind of shrugged their shoulders. They thought I was stupid. And they said, well, it's security. Yeah. I said, Why okay. would that be relevant? Yeah. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding because we need to make sure that our application of personnel, training, resources, and equipment is guided towards this goal. Because I heard something about gathering on people of Muslim descent. And I want to know how people think that advances the goal of security. And this civilian just kind of laughed at me and said, well, if you have to ask that question, I'm not sure I'm interested in your answer. I said, well, if you're not willing to hear me, then I'm concerned about your question and I'm concerned about where you're coming from. And uh, oh boy, we had it out. Uh, in the end, they asked, okay, final opinion, is it legal or not? And I said, well, let's, we'll get there, but I want to understand why you think people of Muslim descent are the threat. I said, well, Nidal Hassan was a Muslim. I said, okay. How about in Oklahoma City, uh, the 1993 bombing? You know, he wasn't Muslim. In fact, he was American. Yeah, but we're talking about the current threat. I said, okay, um, John Walker Lind, uh, who was uh, the first terrorist that we captured in Afghanistan, was an American who came from Christian parents. So tell me again why people of Muslim descent are the threat. I said, people are the threat. It's not, it's not Muslims. Well, I, don't, I said, okay, well, why don't we talk about uh, the threat that the drugs have in Texas and nearby. Should we start collecting on everybody of Mexican descent? I mean, you see where this is going, don't you? And everybody started nodding their heads, except for this civilian. And um, so we had it out. But this was one of those instances where I think having uh, a trained lawyer who was willing to dig his heels in and stand ground uh, was able to move people away from what they felt to what they needed to understand. And I couldn't think of a, a more important role for a lawyer to play than that role at that time. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm hearing these echoes of standing your ground, kind of echoing into the, the future situation. And I'm glad that's part of your personal constitution. Yeah. Uh, so are there aspects of your Filipino-American upbringing that you think have helped you to be successful and have the distinguished career that you've had? Well, I think, you know, uh, Filipino-American families are so family-focused, and uh, I take a lot of the lessons that my parents taught me um, you know, to, to take care of others before, before yourself, because they'll take care of you. Um, the idea that there is sometimes a clear right and a clear wrong, and pursuing that is every bit as important as enforcing it. Um, and again, standing your ground when you need to. Uh, you know, as, as a kid growing up, getting picked on. Uh, you had creative ways sometimes of getting out of circumstances, but when you couldn't, the last thing you need to do is cower. You know, you've got to stand your ground and you've got to fight and let them know that, you know, that you mean business. But you're here. Yeah. So now that you've retired, what do you miss the most? I miss the camaraderie. You know, I, I miss showing up at PT in the morning, which is amazing that I'm saying that now. And PT means? Uh, physical training. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me uh, <laughs> no, you've been pretty good here. on the, uh, <laughs> the lingo. So, um, 
you know, I, I, I miss, you know, uh, jaw jacking and, and just talking with people. And I, I miss uh, sitting with folks at lunchtime and, and talking story, you know, hearing about their families and how things are going. Um, you know, although I get to do that with my classmates and I get to do that with friends, uh, it's, it's a little bit different when you have shared experiences like you do in, in a military family. Is there something that you don't miss so much and then you're, uh, you're okay with uh, parting ways? Yeah, yeah. Although it was great for career development and for experience, I don't miss moving so much. You know, I moved 14 times in 23 years and uh, it's nice to be able to take root. Uh, you know, it's nice to take root in a place like Hawaii for sure. So I don't miss the moving around so much. Well, so let's switch to one of our favorite topics, um, food, of course. <laughs> I remember um, speaking with you years ago, and I said, you know, Rob, so what's next? And you said, I think I'm going to have a food truck in Hawaii. And I was like, ha, 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 no, really. <laughs> and you said, no, really. And look at you now. You're in culinary school. So, you know, when you made that pivot a couple of years ago away from the legal practice, what was that all about? Tell yeah. us about that decision. Honestly, it's one of the best decisions I've made in a long time. Uh, being a soldier lawyer requires a, a full commitment. Uh, and I've invested a lot in the practice of law and, and, and you know, wearing the uniform. Uh, I'd like to think that that investment made a difference. But I have to admit that uh, as I started thinking about all the other things that I'd like to do over, over time, um, but I had to table it. You know, because the mission came first, or my soldiers and their families came first. Uh, I got to a point where I realized that when there are probably more years behind you than there are in front of you, uh, it's time to start thinking about all those things you've tabled and asking yourself whether uh, you need to devote more time to it. And, and culinary cooking was certainly one of them. So tell me more about your love for food and cooking. Uh, well, I mean, I've always loved food. I always have. <laughs> And, 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 you know, the, the, I loved eating, but I also loved how different cultures treated similar ingredients differently. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that I always enjoyed. I always appreciated that. Um, you know, I think that food is easily uh, the most acceptable, uh, culturally acceptable expression uh, of one's personality and one's culture to other people. Do you see any connections between your love for food and the practice of law, or was cooking just a respite? Yeah, well, you know, in my experience, uh, both as a lawyer and a soldier, uh, I saw food used as a, a conversation starter, um, a peacemaker, really, and, and a safe zone. Um, my last deployment to Iraq, I, I met with a number of Iraqi officials, some of whom I knew were, um, well, could be, I didn't know, but I could be, you know, in the pockets of some of our insurgents who would love nothing more than to, to shoot us in the back. And um, maybe literally, right? Yeah, maybe literally. And so, but we were able to sit down together at the table and it was usually over tea or it was usually over some small plates or some food. And so I, I thought about that a lot and I thought, you know, if, if I could learn to cook food at a high level and, um, and that people could enjoy, then I can literally and figuratively bring people to the table. I love that. I, I thought you were going to say, you know, because if people's mouths are full, they can't be arguing or something. <laughs> Strategy I use. And I would my, have my knives at the ready if I needed them, right? <laughs> my children, but uh, I think you make a much more poignant point. Um, so I can't let you go without getting some final thoughts from you. Uh, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that the military emphasizes the importance of leadership. 
and developing a personal leadership philosophy. So what's yours? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that question. And I really loved hearing A.B. Cruz's uh, you know, leadership philosophy at uh, the Unfala Gala. Uh, mine is structured differently. Um, I focus really on three points, trying to make them memorable. You know, I call them bump, the bumper sticker way of communicating. Uh, and the first one is um, clients come first. That, that the, it, point, it points to the need to put the interest of your clients ahead of your own. You know, your client could be someone who requires legal services. It could be somebody who works for you. It could be somebody whose care has been entrusted to you. You know, that's who I consider a client. And uh, clients come first means you give everything you have to ensure your client is better capable of making decisions or just living life because of your service. And, and that means understanding what they need, distinguishing what they need from what they want, because oftentimes what they want isn't what they need. Yeah, I've heard you say <laughs> servant first, right? Yes, exactly. Servant first. And then the second principle is that happy people work harder. You know, I, um, I've always said that you know, leadership is not a crown. It's a yoke. You know, it's a duty. It's a responsibility. And, and you need to take that on soberly and with a sense of, of duty to other people. And part of that is um, devoting yourself to their welfare. And um, <clears throat> that, that means providing meaningful guidance and direction. Uh, career advice if they want it, um, personal advice, you know, because sometimes uh, personal affairs get in the way of people doing their jobs, whatever, whatever it is. And if I found that if, if your teammates knew that you were committed to their welfare, they would be more committed to getting the job done and that they in turn would find people to take care of. So happy people work harder. Uh, and the third philosophy was the buck stops at you. Now, I never liked the idea of passing on blame you know, we have a saying in the army that you praise publicly and you punish privately. Uh, if something bad happens and it was somebody on my team who either uh, misread something, uh, uh, missed a call, whatever, and a complaint came through, I made sure that I took personal responsibility for it. I didn't name who that person was. Uh, it was my responsibility because I'm their leader. And then I would follow up with that person, educate them on what they need to do differently so they don't make that same mistake. And again, if my teammates knew they had that I had their back, then they, I knew they would have mine. And so clients come first, happy people work harder, and the buck stops at you. So what would you like people to remember about you most? Oh, um, I think I'd like to be remembered as someone who followed his parents' lead and, and lived a life serving others. Uh, when I would meet others uh, work-related wise or answer my phone, my first question would be, how may I serve? And, um, and actually in the military, we have these things called challenge coins. And a challenge coin is something that represents either your command or your organization. And my challenge coin had my slogan on it, how may I serve? Uh, because I thought that kind of best captured my role uh, in that organization and, and kind of how I view living life. And your how personal philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I look forward to hearing more of your stories another day. Yeah, thanks so much, Heidi. You've been listening to In the Pocket. If you'd like more information on Infala, visit us online at infala.com or look us up on Facebook. Many thanks to Heidi and Rob for this truly insightful interview, and to Rob's wife, Lonnie, for sharing him with us. Stay tuned for even more wonderful interviews with members of the Infala family this upcoming year here at In the Pocket.